Good morning. I'm Perry. I uh, come from LCMC. I'm actually here in Iowa, so it's kind of nice for Iowa churches. I can get out every once in a while and get to know people and talk to people. Um, I work in three areas uh, mainly in my work with LCMC. It's uh, um, certifications, pastors coming into our organization. So I think uh, Andrew and Allison Potraps have gone through during my time of doing certifications. Uh, I, worked with, I work with call processes and congregations as they seek out pastors. So I consult with pastors across the congregations across the country doing that. And then also conflict and working with seminaries and uh, you know, numerous other sorts of things like that. So um, it's good to be with you today. And today we're gonna talk about conflict because um, this is something I've been working on for many years. Um, I used to work at a congregation that was somehow connected a little bit to Roland Story City up in Thompson, Iowa. Anybody ever heard of Thompson, Iowa? Yeah, a number of hands go up here, maybe some relatives up there. Um, and they would talk about you down there, always in a good way, never in a bad way. Um, but, you know, um, getting to uh, that place some 25 years ago, I learned about conflict resolution and what that looked like. And back in seminary, I had had some family systems training and so it's natural that I would develop in that over the years, learn about it, use it in lots of counseling situation with a large staff that I had at, at, uh, on one occasion. So it's, uh, it's really a, a helpful tool. And it's uh, hopefully in this uh, next uh, 20 minutes that we're together or so, probably more like 25, sorry about that, guys. Um, but uh, hopefully you get a, a taste of it. And maybe some of you will say, you know, I, I was thinking about going this afternoon. I didn't think I wanted to. There's no football really on yet at this point. Can you call preseason football football? Um, are the Bears playing? I don't even know. But, but maybe you'll say, I might be a little interested in learning a little bit more. So let me start off uh, the words that I always begin a sermon with is grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. So I like to always start off with a little story, maybe get our, ourselves relaxed a little bit, uh, ready to hear and listen. There was this woman who was at the airport and she was waiting on her hours long flight and it had been delayed. So she headed over to one of the, uh, the shops in the airport and she, uh, she bought herself a book to read and a bag of cookies. And so she went and sat down in the airport, sat next to a man and put her belongings down beside her. She engrossed herself in the book, she began to read, and she noticed that while she was reading, that this man boldly reached down and grabbed a cookie out of the bag of cookies. She was uh, somewhat taken aback by this, but she decided not to make a scene, so she ignored it. And uh, she herself munched on a couple of cookies and got back into her book. Well, he apparently liked the cookies so well that he reached in and grabbed another and another. She was getting pretty irritated with this. Every time that she would grab a cookie, so would he. And uh, you know, finally at the end, when there was one cookie left, he nervously divided it in two, handed her one of it, <laughs> smiled as he gave it to her, and she said, the nerve of this guy, he won't even say thank you for all eating half a bag of cookies. She was really excited and glad when her flight was called, so headed over to her gate, got onto the airplane, sat down in her seat, got out her book, and began to read her book. 
She reached down into her baggage, and there was the bag of cookies she had bought at the airport shop a little earlier. She had been eating from his bag of cookies the entire time. Isn't it interesting how um, so much of our life is built around perception? I think last night, I think last night alone, my wife and I had at least two or three times where we had misperceptions of what the other person was saying. In, in one night, we averaged two to three conflicts, uh, you know, normal conflicts a week. That's pretty much an average for us. And so hopefully what we're about to talk about today can help you to see that conflict doesn't mean you're a bad person. Conflict is what happens on this side of heaven before we go meet Jesus one day. That we live in this world where we are broken, we are sinners, we hurt people, we get hurt. And that's a normal process. And so to begin, you know, I, I, some churches that I go to to do conflict resolution workshops, they said, can we not call it conflict resolution? We don't want to scare people. I'm like, what? I mean, it's kind of happens every day in our household. How about you? Has anybody here never experienced a conflict in their life? Okay, there's a couple of kids thinking about it, but all right. Right? I mean, let's talk about conflict. In community, it's normal. So Jesus, in today's gospel reading, from Matthew chapter 18, has the prescription, the plan for what it looks like to resolve conflict together. And let me just tell you, church, we don't follow his plan very well. We just don't. It's almost like we ignore it as the church, and we kind of do things our way or the world's way or in a perspective that we somehow learned uh, from some tough-minded people because we need to you know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be strong. Whatever that is, we tend to ignore what Jesus said. So I want to start today by talking about that in conflict, and I have three points. The first is, is that God has given you a plan to live by. Okay, God has given you a plan to live by. So let's take a look at that. And as you look at Matthew 18, and um, I think you have pew Bibles. Do you guys have pew Bibles here? You can always pull that open if you wouldn't mind. And uh, Matthew 18 says this, if your brother or sister uh, sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that the matter may be established by testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Jesus gives a very basic plan here of how to live in community. It, first of all, Jesus uh, knows that we are going to struggle. He didn't say, here's, here's what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, hey, everybody, I want you to really live righteous and in living righteous, you'll never have conflict. See you later. I'm headed to heaven. He never said that. That's not what Jesus said. He said, hey community, um, it's getting late here in Gospel of Matthew. I'm, I'm gonna be taking off soon. Before I do, let me tell you something. It's gonna be very important for you, church. The word ekklesia in the Greek, church. I have some important words for you and how to, how to walk together. Are you listening? Will you listen? And so Jesus tells them, First of all, the first point is, is um, when someone hurts you, sins against you, fails you, disappoints you, uh, go directly to that person 
and tell them. And if they, if they listen to you, you've won a brother or sister. So this is the most unlistened to advice that Jesus ever gave in scripture. Can I get an amen on that? Does anybody else know that this is true? Thank you, right there. What's your name? I wanna hear, yeah, come on. Uh, this is so true. When people hurt me, I tend to, one of three things, fight, flight, or freeze. It's this lower part of your brain. If someone attacks me or says something that hurts me, I go from here down to the lower part of my brain, and I, I either ready to fight, flight, or I freeze and have no idea what's going on. And typically, what I'll do is not say anything to them. Oh, you hurt me. But later, I might get back at them, or I might go and talk to someone about them. And so we don't follow Jesus' very first plan of action. If somebody hurts you, go to that. Now, there's a number of reasons that we might not do it. Maybe number one, we're afraid. This is a power person. And we're afraid what their reaction might be, so we cower a little bit, and, and we're not really ready for that. Uh, it, it might be a person uh, we think less of than ourselves, so we have a little bit of arrogance. Think more of ourselves than them, and we're like, well, you know, I wouldn't go to talk to them. They're not worth it. Uh, there's a whole number of reasons why, why people don't do it, but mostly it's because we are hiding behind our own lack of feel, or feeling of inadequacy or lack of feeling of self-esteem in our life. And so we fail to want to have relationship with others because we ourselves don't feel up to what that relationship might look like. But Jesus tells us, you know, go. And what happens when husband and wife are arguing, she goes and talks to mom, or he goes and talks to dad, or however that works out, and we want them to get involved. That's called triangulation. If you've ever heard that word, wanting to get a friend involved to, to come and, and solve the problem with you, that's called triangulation. Why do we do that? We feel powerless in our relationship with the other person. So if I go tell this person, I might be able to be powered up in myself so that now I can face you. That brings us to point two. Jesus says, um, he says, if, if that fails to go and talk to them directly, take one or two others with you. What did Jesus say, why? To pummel them, right? To get them in line, tell them how it is, and that's the way it's gonna be. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, so that every word may be verified by, by two or three witnesses. That word verified is an interesting word. Uh, it's actually the root word for truth, truth. That the truth might come out. Not that somehow my truth is right over your truth, but that when we come together to talk, we can find the truth between the two of us. Almost always when my wife and I have a disagreement, when we come to listen to each other, I'm going like, oh, that's not at all how I took that. Or that's not at all how I meant that when I said that. But if I keep it to myself and go and talk to someone else, guess what? My version of the truth is half the truth. And so coming together, we discover the truth together. So Jesus says, come together so that you can figure things out. Bring someone with you. Go to a counselor who can help you talk through it, right? Um, the third thing Jesus says is, uh, if that fails, he says, take it to the church, right? Let's call a congregational meeting of Emmanuel Lutheran Church and let's decide how we're, uh, 
The word ecclesia, take it to the church at that time, represented small house churches of maybe six, eight, ten people who were gathered together to worship the Lord and let's come together and talk. Let's see if we can figure it out together, whatever happened. Right? So um, it, Jesus didn't say, hey, bring it to the church so we can all gossip about it. No, that's not it at all. That we would come together, try to solve problems, try to find solutions that we can all live with. And then fourth and finally, and this is my favorite, Jesus says, okay, if all that fails, treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. When I was younger, um, sitting in the pew and early in ministry, I used to think, okay, that's it. That's the end of the line right there. Treat them like a pagan and tax collector. In the Jewish faith and Jewish religion, they are on the outside. They're looking in. But in Jesus' style of ministry, where are they? He's sitting at the table with them. He's talking with them. He's engaging with them. Even though they don't want to maybe be a part of what he's about, he's reaching out to them. So Jesus' four-step plan is, number one, go to the person directly. Number two, when that fails, bring another person along. Let's see if we can figure this out between, between us. Third, let's get, um, let's get an, a group of people, wise people involved who can try to figure this out, understand it. Uh, at a church level today, it might be a church council or a, I, I like to recommend a conflict resolution team in the church. And fourth and finally, if all that fails, don't stop. Keep trying, reach out, have lunch with them. I, um, I had a person I had a conflict with some years ago, and he and I uh, have gotten together over the course of the last um, half dozen years or so, and, and we'll go to lunch and we'll sit and talk. And do you know that God finally broke through in that relationship about a year ago, and that our relationship has been restored? I wouldn't even be Facebook friends with this guy five years ago. But now, and you know, it's like, we have 200 friends in common. You know, do you want to Facebook friend this person? It was like, um, now just who's next? So they have possibilities. Now we've become friends again. God restores when we keep at it. Now, for those of you who might be in a relationship where you're being abused, this is not permission to stay in a relationship where somebody's pummeling you. That's not what this is about. But that we would love in relationships in a way that represents God's love for us, that we keep sending signals of wanting to reconcile, wanting to work through problems. Well, um, there's a four-step process that's in your bulletin that was handed out to you today. Let me take you through this briefly. I do have uh, two other points in the message today, but this is, again, uh, God has a plan for you to live by. On one side of the sheet, is this, it says conflict resolution. Four steps, really easy, you take this home. I recommend putting this up on your um, refrigerator. I was counseling with a couple who I'm doing their wedding here later this month. I was counseling with a couple the other night by Zoom. They're out in, in Boston. And, uh, and I was talking to them. I said, you guys doing your conflict resolution? This is, I you know, met with them three or four times. They said, we still have it up on our refrigerator. And about every time we get into a tough situation, one of us will say, should we go over to the refrigerator? <laughs> so, you know, this can help. It can bring hope into hopeless situations. Number one is you can't solve problems when you're hot under the collar. I had a daughter who had Asperger's, and she would go like to zero to 60 seconds, zero to 60 in no time at all with her anger, right? It's just part of her physical makeup. And so, um, you know, I would want to enter into conflict resolution with her during that time, and it never worked. 
My wife would say something like, would you quit yelling at our daughter? I said, I'm not yelling. I'm just, you know, kind of matching her intensity, you know? And uh, that didn't go over well. Uh, so my point is, is that it never works when, when you, you're not going to be able to solve problems when you're angry. Here's why. When you're in the lower part of your brain, there's two ways that you're looking at things. My way and the highway, right? My way and the wrong way. My way and your way. There's only two ways. When you take time to think, to get outside of the situation, to be able to relax, to renew, to refresh, you actually can think of a myriad of ways to solve problems. But you can't do that when you're angry. You're not ready to listen to anybody because they're right, they're wrong, you're right, and so on. So number one, stop and cool off. Number two is to listen, then talk. You share the issue, but you also share the feeling. Share the issue, but you also share the feeling. Um, and notice the order, listen, then talk. Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. You know, we tend to want to tell our story to get it out, especially extroverts like me. Want to talk, get it out, let's solve the problem. But if we are given two ears and one mouth, it means we need to listen twice as much as we talk, right? And so God would want us in these situations to listen. There's some great scripture passage, passages about listen to one another. Take time to understand one another. And so on the backside of the sheet is one of the keys to conflict resolution. The vocabulary of feelings. And guys, I know, I'm sorry. I know this is not like, you know, you run big power equipment at a local tiling, you know, thing or something. And you think, what, we're going to talk about feelings today? Oh, crap, I'm not coming to this thing this afternoon. No way, not me. But let me tell you that this is the key to breaking through in relationships. Vulnerability, the ability to show what's going on inside of me so the other person can understand me. You know, my wife had no idea early on in our marriage what was going on inside of me because I had no way of communicating with her what was going on inside of me. When I uh, finally got this uh, sheet of paper, the sheet of paper, uh, sheet of feelings, uh, my, uh, I, I shared a couple of feelings with my wife, and she was like, I never knew that. So there's a way to do that. You just simply say, I, I felt blank when that happened. I felt disappointed when you got home late for lunch. That happened to a lot, us a lot, by the way. I was out saving the world, you know, as a pastor, helping everybody, but would just transgress and walk right through the timelines for our family. And my wife was disappointed and hurt and second best. But until I heard her feelings, I had no idea what was going on inside of her. I didn't even know how to solve the problem because I just thought she was mad at me. And by the way, anger is the second emotion you feel. You get angry because you're disappointed. You get angry because you're hurt. You get angry because you're embarrassed. You get angry because you're left out. It's the second emotion that you feel. So back to the other side of the sheet, we listen and talk. This opens the door. This moves us from a, the Bible talks of a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. God says, I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. This is the place where that happens, where Jesus says, it's your hard-heartedness that leads to broken relationship. And Paul in the gospel, or the second reading, or the, the, second, the lesson for today said, um, uh, have tender hearts, forgiving one another. 
And we move from this hard heart to tender heart as we share the feeling. As Rick Warren would say, the revealing of the feeling is the beginning of healing. Only Rick Warren can say stuff like that. All right, so the third thing is to brainstorm solutions. All ideas are good at this point. Uh, we just make a list. I tell people you know, minimum of 10 things on a list to solve a problem. Corporate world, you have to have 15. So when I get together with churches that are in conflict, we want 15 solutions on the table. Um, it's, for couples, a minimum of 10. If you're in a relationship with somebody, minimum of 10. And every idea is a good idea. If you've ever watched Family Feud before it got kind of raunchy as it is today, uh, it, they would, uh, somebody would give a really bad answer, right? And everybody at, down in the rest of the team says what? Good answer, good answer, right? So at this point, we're just saying good answer, good answer. Finally, the last one is, is choose the best idea. Um, you're not always gonna get what you want, but you can always, with others, typically find something you're satisfied with. Mutually agreeable solutions. Boy, get that one in your, in your back pocket. Mutually agreeable solutions. When you are able with others to find a solution that you agree on, you've won. And notice at the bottom of the page, don't think win-lose anymore in relationships. Think win-win. Somebody said, you need to take this to Washington, D.C. I said, I know, I know, right? I mean, we're in a time in, you know, on Facebook, in Washington, you know, in our communities and churches where it's win-lose. I'm right, you're wrong, there's only one way to solve this problem. But God's design and desire for us is to come together and solve problems with one another. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, Jesus was in the world reconciling the world to himself, to, God's, to God. And so now God has made us ambassadors of reconciliation. God has said to us, you now will go into the world and be reconcilers. That's your job now. So, God has given you a plan to live by. Secondly, he's given you his presence to live on. Notice that Jesus said this. He said, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Let me just tell you, for years I've misquoted this verse, I think. Someone brought this to my attention. A pastor I work with for years brought this to my attention about five years ago. He said, uh, you know, everybody says that. Uh, you know, Bible study, you get there, two or three people are there, and not many people showed up. Well, Jesus said, where two or three people are gathered, let's, let's start the Bible study, right? I said that dozens of times. Notice where this is placed. It's right in the midst of Jesus talking about conflict. And he says, where two or three or people are gathered in my name, I'm there. You're going through a conflict with somebody in the body of Christ? and you bring Jesus into it, Jesus says, I'm there. Uh, you, you're not alone when you walk into conflict. Every time I go into a conflict kind of situation, the first thing I do is pray. And I say, Holy Spirit, I can't solve this problem, but I know you can. And a lot of times, sometimes things look impossible, improbable, but God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and show us something that we aren't seeing reveal to the people involved things that we don't yet know. Jesus says, I am there in the midst of it. You have his presence to live, to live on. And what is Jesus' presence? 
It's about grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, the, the passage of scripture that I just mentioned from 2 Corinthians. How about Romans chapter five, where God says, while they were, and Paul writing in God's, God's word, while they were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God didn't wait for us to somehow get righteous. In fact, all the attempts in the Old Testament, that was a failure. Instead, God sent Jesus. He descended to us. That's what the incarnation is all about, is that God became one of us, became human, right? And what is that message? Love and grace for broken people who were created in my image, but have lost that image in their sinfulness. I uh, love the story that's told by jo uh, Gerhard Frost of a, a little boy who has uh, got a sailboat kit and he's putting it together. He cuts the wood, he fashions it together, he molds it and shapes it and he, he paints it and he puts it together, glues it, and uh, he makes a, a mast and his mom helps him with the sails. And, and when he's done, he is just so proud of his little boat. He holds it in his arms and he says, you're mine, little boat, I, I made you. And so he takes his boat down to the local river and he, uh, he sets it into the river for its maiden voyage. And as he sets it down in there, he's, he's so proud. It floats, it works. He was ecstatic until it floated out of his reach, around the bend, out of his sight. He lost his little boat. He went home dejected. So a couple weeks later, he was walking downtown and he walked by a little pawn shop and here in the window of the pawn shop was his boat. He runs into the store and he says, Mr. Mister, that's my boat, that's my boat, can I have my boat? Not, not unless you pay the price that's on the tag. So the little boy went home determined. He saved his nickels, dimes, and quarters, he mowed the lawn, he did extra chores for his mom, saved his allowance until he had the money that was listed on that tag. He lovingly grabbed it, proudly took it down to the store clerk and placed it on the counter. And he said, Mr. Mr. Here's the money for the boat. Here's the money for the boat. Can I, can I have my boat now? And he says, you can have your boat. So the little boy went over, grabbed the boat. And he was heard to have said as he walked out the door, you're mine, little boat. Twice over. Once because I made you. Twice because I bought you back. Dear friends in Christ, that's what God says to you and me every day. You're mine because I made you. I made you the crown of my creation, the joy of my creativity with imagination and potentiality and creativity. You're mine because I made you, but you're mine twice over because I bought you back. I saw your sin and guilt and regret, the mess that your life was, and I sent my son, Jesus, to redeem you, to bring you back to me. Dear friends, we now have the, the glory, the joy of living in that relationship with someone who knows the very sin of our lives but loves us still. He is present to us in the midst of conflicts, bringing that very hope that the, the brokenness of a relationship can be redeemed day after day after day. We have his plan to live by, his presence to live on, and finally a purpose to live for in conflict. We tend to lose sight 
of what God is doing in our lives. And boy, Peter was one, right? He says to Jesus, so how often should we forgive? Uh, 70 time, uh, seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. In other words, seven times 70, most scholars think Jesus was saying there. So, so 490 times, right? So I should start counting today, right? Um, boy, um, because I'm pretty sure my wife and I are far past 490, okay? 40, 37 years of marriage, I think we're past 490. So I should be ready to chuck it, right? Here's the formula that Jesus was referring to in, in Hebrew times or in old Israelite times. Um, you were to forgive someone three times, double it, and add one for good measure seven times, right? So that you made sure you did your part, I tried, and now I'm finished. That was sort of the Jewish law, Jewish culture. Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seventy. Seven times. Um, our eyesight is that still of the law. You know, whenever you read what Jesus is saying in Scripture, just do this. Just start with this. What is he trying to turn over from Jewish law? Every time he talks. And you will have your eyes opened time after time and after time. We want to turn back into law what Jesus is trying to get us to understand God's grace for our life. And so this idea of there's a limit to how much I can forgive. Jesus, I, I, I don't think that's the way God does this. And then he goes on to tell this incredible story uh, right after this passage of scripture we just read today. He says this, this king had uh, accounts, was settling accounts, and here's this one guy comes in, and he owes the king in today's money, today's money, now I know the inflation and all of that, but, but about $2.5 billion. This guy works at Walmart, but he owes the, owes the king $2.5 billion in today's money. And, and so he says to the king, he, uh, the king says, pay me what you owe me. And the, and the guy says, oh, be merciful to me and I'll pay you every penny. Which, if Jesus is telling the story, think about the crowd going, come on, that's ridiculous. He works at Walmart, 2.5 million, billion, he'll never be able to repay it. Is he going to become Jeff Bezos or something with Amazon? What, what's the plan? And so the king says, all right, I forgive you. And again, the crowd is like, what? King wouldn't do that. He says, yeah, he says, go. So the guy goes and he finds somebody in today's money who owes him about, figure this out again, somewhere between eight and $10,000. And he grabs him by the chest, by, the, by the, uh, the, the shirt, and he says, pay me what you owe me. The same phrase that the king told him. And the guy uses the same exact words with him as he did with the king. He says, I, I, be merciful to me, I'll, I'll repay you everything. And the guy has him thrown in jail. And Jesus says, what do you think the king's gonna do when he finds out about this? And uh, you know, they reply, well, he's, yeah, I'm probably gonna throw him in jail until he repays every bit of the 2.5 billion. Here's the thing, dear friends in Christ, what I love about that story is when I concentrate on the 2.5 billion that I'm being forgiven, that eight or 10,000 doesn't look very much to me. So when my wife says something to hurt my feelings and sends me down in the lower part of my brain, scripture says, don't be anxious about anything that's down here, but pray about everything. 
remember how much you're forgiven and freed. God has now given you a purpose to, to take this love and grace that he gave you and take it into the world instead of grabbing people by the collar, telling them, you know, you pay me what you owe me, extend the forgiveness. Give them the grace, give them the hope, the mercy that, that you long for. Um, I'm getting a little off my sermon here and I know that's dangerous. So I brought this along uh, today. There, um, Here's where I wanted to go real quick. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, uh, they eat the forbidden fruit, right? And here comes God in the garden. And God's in the garden and, and uh, they're hiding behind fig leaves and bushes. And uh, they do that because they found out they're naked. They're vulnerable, so they're hiding. And so uh, here comes God walking. And how do we usually view this, what God says? Adam, where are you? kind of John Wayne. I can't do it very good, John Wayne. Um, did, did you eat the fruit of the tree I told you not to? You know, and Adam's like, oh, you know, she did it. Um, here's how I think God's voice is at that moment. Adam, where are you? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to? I think God is heartbroken. And we know that because God covers Adam and Eve with skins. They had covered themselves with fig leaves, you know, that's gonna wear off and, and that's gonna be gone quickly. Kind of like the masks that we put on today to hide our nakedness, our vulnerability. You know, that if I can just have a claim or affirmation or applause, you know, that, that people will see that I'm some, if I'm beautiful or, or, or bountiful, that people will think I'm somebody, but I know I'm not. I'm hiding. And Jesus goes to the cross and he gives us his blood. And God covers us with that ultimately so that we are ultimately forgiven. And that's why I brought this Chinese symbol for righteousness. I love the Chinese symbol for righteousness. It's, um, it's two parts. On the top part is uh, the symbol for a lamb. And on the bottom part is a symbol for me. When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see my nakedness. He sees Christ. He sees the lamb over me. Wow, isn't that beautiful? That's what I want to take into the world from the 2.5 billion that I've been forgiven. Knowing that people are walking around putting on masks, they're hiding behind bushes and fig leaves, trying to hide the, the shame and the vulnerability that was ours in the Garden of Eden, but that Jesus overcame on the cross, I, I, that's the righteousness I need. Not my self-made righteousness that somehow gets very quickly lost as I try to show you how good I am. So today, you can leave here and and, and be like Moses and uh, say, who, me? <laughs> or you can be like Jonah who said, not me. Or you can be like Habakkuk in the Old Testament who said, why me? Or maybe today you'd be like Isaiah who would say, here, my Lord, send me. God is sending us into the world with this great news that you have his plan to live by, his presence to live on, and now you have a purpose to live for. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, which always drives us back, Lord, to your grace and to your mercy.
and to your help when we are helpless and powerless against the evil one in this world who wants and is avowed to destroy our relationships. So would you, God, by your presence, come into our lives and in our relationships. We ask you, Holy Spirit, would you fill us again and again and again that we might live for you and by your grace, that your hope might be the hope that we can have in relationships and, and have relationships restored, Jesus. We know we'll fail, but we come to your cross every week, every day, to be reminded of your good news, that we are forgiven and renewed to go with your grace. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.